on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today we're talking about is green slime slithering into Casco Bay, Maine, and what you can do about it to stem the slime. My guests today are Casco Baykeeper Joe Payne. Hello, Joe. Nice to be with you today. And also with us is Mary Cerullo, Associate Director of the Friends of Casco Bay. Hi, Mary. Hey, Rob. How are you doing? Good. Let me take a minute and tell um, people a little bit about you two. Uh. Joe has been with Friends of, well, Friends of Casco Bay, was a volunteer-run watershed organization um, until 1991 when Joe Payne was hired as Casco Baykeeper. With the Baykeeper, Friends of Casco Bay became a founding member of the Waterkeeper Alliance, an international environmental network that has grown to nearly 200 organizations. Under Joe's leadership, Friends of Casco Bay has implemented programs that combine environmental protection with economic pragmatism. Joe is a native Portlander who summered on Peaks Island as a child and is a grandson of a fisherman. As we will hear, Joe is guided by both a passionate love of Casco Bay and an understanding of its physical and biological dynamics. His work as a marine biologist from 1974 to 1991 included 12 years with Norman Doe Associates. Joe has years of field work and investigations into a wide variety of marine species, ecosystems dynamics, and impact assessments. Mary Cerullo is Associate Director, and she's responsible for Friends of Casco Bay's publication, Public Relations and Educational Outreach. She works with communities on basecaping, a six-step program for homeowners on environmentally friendly lawn care, and she works with the Casco Bay curriculum, 38 activities for fourth and to sixth grades using current, local, and scientific data, much of it collected by Friends of Casco Bay staff and volunteers. Mary has over 30 years' experience as a science translator. She has interpreted marine issues to the general public and for marine user groups throughout New England including the New England Aquarium, uh, Maine and New Hampshire Sea Grant College Program, the Great Bay New Hampshire National Estuarine Research Reserve, and the Gulf of Maine Aquarium. Mary's the award-winning author of 14 nonfiction children's books on the ocean, as well as a handbook for teachers 
on using children's literature in the science classroom. Mary's also a legend with educators interested in the coast of Maine and with the Gulf of Maine Marine Education Association. And whenever they meet in the Northeast, the National Marine Educators Association. So, Joe and Mary, it's great to have you on the show. Um, Mary, you've been with the Friends of Casco Bay longest. Uh, tell us a bit about the work that the Friends are doing. Oh, okay. No, I've, just, I've only been here a mere 11 years, where Joe is coming up on his 20th year as the first employee of Friends of Casco Bay. But it does seem yeah, like correct. an awful long time to be here, but... They can't get rid of me. Um, but Friends of Casco Bay is a, is a really unique group. First of all, it's a 1,200-member organization, uh, and all, all of our advocacy efforts are, are based on protecting the interests of the citizens uh, of this area, uh, really based on the premises of the Clean Water Act and the citizen suits. Uh, all of our conservation work is uh, based on scientific data, which makes us a little bit different than some other environmental groups in that we don't take a position until uh, we have some science to back it up. And uh, uh, Joe is the epitome of uh, both a scientist and a communicator uh, in that he understands the background of the scientific issues, and then he can relate it not only to our members and the general public, but even sometimes more importantly to regulators uh, and uh, policymakers, and has a huge influence because everything he does is based on credible science. So uh, we like to say everything we do is based on credibility, and we don't have anything else um, except that. Uh, but fortunately, we have that in space with Joe Payne as the baykeeper. Excellent. Joe, tell us about being a baykeeper, or the Casco baykeeper. Right, well... That's a tall order we, for the time we have, Rob, but uh, I guess the term I like best is uh, ombudsman for the Bay, uh, eyes and ears, voice of the Bay. Um, and some pe- sometimes people ask me, Baykeeper, well, where do you keep the Bay? And I think <laughs> the best answer is uh, sometimes, of course, I can't resist saying in my pocket, but uh, I think the best answer is in the public eye, uh, keeping people aware that for the most part, our quality of life here is related to the Bay. And so keeping it in there uh, on their consciousness is really important to us and helps us get our work done. So do you have a, a vessel that you go out in and, and look around, or how does it work? We do. Uh, we actually now, after uh, 20 years being one of the, the older waterkeeper programs, bay keepers, lake keepers, river keepers, uh, we have a couple of vessels. Um, called the Baykeeper and Baykeeper 2, uh, and we go out and do patrols around looking for issues. Of course, the reality is uh, we can't solve those issues out on the bay. That always means coming back to land. But as Mary was mentioning, the credibility aspect of our work, we use one of our vessels to do extensive water quality testing and, and mud testing from the bottom of the ocean. Our other vessel is our uh, bottom of the food chain uh, vessel, or put your money where your mouth is, and that's our pump-out vessel. And we go around and pump out uh, sewage holding tanks from recreational vessels uh, to keep sewage out of the bay. And in the last 15 years or so, uh, we've kept over 150,000 gallons of sewage out of the bay just by pumping out uh, recreational boats. 
Well, that's tremendous. So this is a honey boat you have that can yes, go we to have. It's a honey mooring. Boat, all right. <laughs> Joe? Yes. Yes. Oh, so, As I yeah, said, so it you, is the honey um, of a boat, Rob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, so that, I mean, that's phenomenal. That's, that's such an important service that uh, has been slow to come in, to New England is to, you know, try to establish no discharge areas along our water, along our coast. And to do so, they have to have ways of, of taking care of the waste. And it sounds like you guys are a step ahead of the game. Well, I think we are, Rob, because in uh, 1995, looking ahead to what it would take to make Casco Bay a no-discharge zone, uh, we started our pump-out program. And uh, at that point in time, there was only one marina-based pump-out facility in Casco Bay. And we got the boat and we started our mobile pump-out facility. But we worked with marinas and with the state to site other pump-outs because we're always aiming towards a no-discharge zone. And today, there are 22 pump-outs at marinas around Casco Bay, and we're happy to say we led the charge in making Casco Bay the first no-discharge zone in the entire state of Maine, where we have 5,400 miles of coast. And you have the biggest population, don't you, for Maine? In Casco Bay, we do. The estimates vary, but one thing that's sure is we have our watershed is only 3% of the state of Maine's land but we have somewhere around or over 20% of the state's population living on that piece of land. So that's a lot of effluent that has to be treated, and thank you very much for rolling up your sleeves. <laughs> yes, well, and it does give us some credibility that we're willing to go out and pump sewage to get the job done. Well, it sure beats shoveling you-know-what in Louisiana, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, uh, you, you brought my attention to concerns of uh, rising green, you know, green slime, and, and it's getting a lot of national attention for different watersheds. What's happening in the Gulf of Maine? Uh, or in, in Casco Bay, rather. Yeah, well, in, in both places. But in Casco Bay, uh, even though we do have the biggest slice of the state's population here, and, of course, that density leads to more pollution, uh, what we're seeing are the beginnings of nitrogen pollution. Uh, we have uh, just a couple of places, but one in particular where, you know, in New England, if you go at a low tide to a mud flat or a clam flat, um, you sh- expect to see brownish mud. But when you have nitrogen pollution in that area, what you're going to see is a clam flat covered with green algae, green slime. And we have one of those, and it's a, you know, it's a the poster child for nitrogen pollution. And, uh, We've been working on that since starting the pump-out program, uh, since having our water quality monitoring program, and we're trying to move it forward before it becomes uh, really dramatic, really harmful to Casco Bay. Uh, We look to Chesapeake Bay, where they've been working on nitrogen for 25-plus years, and and they're not winning yet. Uh, We don't want to get to that situation, so we're trying to do a preemptive strike here and get regulations in place that will limit how much nitrogen can go into the water. It's really difficult to work on an issue if there's no guideline, if there's no bar, if there's no set limit on what should be in the water, what would be healthy. Because after all, some nitrogen in the water is absolutely necessary and healthy. But after it reaches a certain level, it's counterproductive or actually way too productive. But we don't have that limit yet. So we want to get the limit 
that will give us even more tools to work on nitrogen pollution. Now, nitrogen, green slime spreading across a clam flat cannot make the clammers happy. No, and, you know, actually the, the term green slime uh, comes from two places. Uh, one is uh, we have this odd saying in Maine, down east, uh, which means a little north and east of here. But the down east clammers in Maine uh, noticed it first, and they started talking about green slime. And then there's a scientist out at Scripps on the West Coast who coined the term rise of slime. Uh, so, yes, that green right. slime over the clam flats eventually kills the clams, and it kills the worms, and it kills the amphipods and all the little critters. So instead of a nice, healthy, productive, economically important clam flat, you have a dead few acres of mud. Joe, I have to interrupt you there. We'll be right back after this break. All right. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues, such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Two views. Different topics. Questions. Answers. News. And advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk network keep listening to the green talk network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow the green talk network spread the green
for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about is green slime slithering into the Gulf of Maine in Casco Bay, in parts of Casco Bay, and with me is Casco Baykeeper Joe Payne, who is saying, yeah, in some places we're getting slime, and the, the, uh, this algae you were saying is uh, hitting what? Well, uh, where we're seeing it is on clam flats, because of course they're exposed at low tide, and that's one of the few places where you can see the direct impact of nitrogen. But now, as a clam eater, this is alarming news for me because I gotta have fried clams like once a month or something. Wow, once a month—that's good. Uh, I, I think I'm going to try to uh, challenge that and uh, have them twice a month. I love clams, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's, of course it's an ecosystem issue, uh, but it's an economic issue too. When you and I go and buy fried clams, there's been a four times multiplier since between when the clams were harvested by the clammer until they end up on our plate. So it can have a big economic impact on an area. But, you know, the, how nitrogen works is not just producing uh, green slime, but it's a fertilizer on land. It's a fertilizer in the ocean, and it causes microscopic plants to bloom, and their population get all out of control, and then they die. They have very short lifespans. They die, and bacteria break them down. That takes oxygen out of the water. Now, this all sounds a little complicated, but the end result is we have ocean water without enough oxygen in it to support life. It happens uh, most dramatically at the bottom. In Maine, the ocean bottom is very important because that's the habitat of lobster. And lobsters crawl along the bottom. They need oxygen, just like everything else, just like you and I. And when there's no oxygen... Lobsters die or move out. I mean, some, some die, some move out. But when you start impacting um, a, a harvestable resource like lobsters that have such a huge impact on Maine, that uh, impact can go right through the economy, right through the community, have uh, unexpected and rather dramatic impacts. Yes, and you also have a few commercially valuable ground fish I would think groundfish means they're close to the bottom. Right, right. It affects groundfish, and it also affects the fish up in the water column in enclosed bays. Uh, you know, take a small enclosed bay, we have a number of them, and take some runoff from lawns and agriculture, putting nitrogen into that waterway with limited flushing, and you start greening it up. So instead of what we think of as slime, we have the greening of the ocean because it's full of these microscopic plants. And then you take some fish like menhaden, called a bunker or pogies, and they're, they're looking for food, and they're good at finding it, so they rush up into these small bays because of that impact of the bacteria breaking down the, the dead uh, phytoplankton. Matter, yeah. It, there's lower oxygen already. Then these masses of uh, menhaden go into these bays. They're taking oxygen out of the water which is already challenged, pretty soon you have the fish suffocating. So you have fish dying, going to the bottom, adding to the problem, more dead bodies, more oxygen being taken out of the water. So 
it, nitrogen pollution has a lot of faces. A lot of it affects the harvestable resources, um, and it definitely affects the health of Casco Bay. So the dead zone, we've talked on the other programs about the dead zone or hypoxia, these no oxygen areas. So the area literally expands with death and destruction, I guess, making it a larger area of the water. Right, and, and we're lucky here. As I said, we're right on, on the, the very edge of starting to see some of the impacts of nitrogen pollution. So you know, while we have a slime-covered uh, clam flat over here and we have a small dead zone there and then we uh, may have a fish kill, we haven't had them for a couple of years, but uh, for 10 years we were having them every year. Uh, so we have all of these impacts. And then you know, when you talk about uh, that term some of us like to use, charis- charismatic megafauna, the kind of most popular ocean creatures are whales and seals and dolphins. And back in, I think it was 2002, we had 21 uh, whale deaths in the Gulf of Maine, larger than Casco Bay, of course, but it was due to nitrogen pollution. Uh, and that's because one of those small uh, plants and animals that nitrogen impacts uh, and grows big populations of, produces a toxin called domoic acid. And domoic affects us if we eat it in clams. So, Rob, we've got to be careful. But it affects other mammals like whales. And uh, like I say, in one year, 21 whales uh, died because of nitrogen pollution. Wow. From Cape Cod to Nova Scotia, you lost 21 whales. And you're saying it's because... The water was full of a toxin secreted by the algae that bloomed on the nitrogen. Exactly, and it's, it's very similar to the red tide phenomenon that most New Englanders and most people on the East Coast are familiar with, except, except it's a different toxin. Well, that is a very important term here in the Gulf of Maine, and the economy of the Gulf of Maine is red tide. Um, how does red tide relate to this nutrient runoff issue? So no matter what we talk about, Rob, you're bringing it back to clams, huh? The red tide and clams. <laughs> uh, well, I was fortunate to see uh, Congressman uh, Pingree last night, and uh, she was instrumental in enabling the House to pass a, a red tide harmful algal bloom uh, research bill and hypoxia research bill, and uh, she and she deliberate. She specifically said. You know, red tide is such a bad economic impact for for her citizens in Maine that this was an obvious bill to put through. Tell right. us more about red tide and and how that's not the same as some of the other as the green slime on the clam flats that we're hearing about. Sure. Well, first I, I have to say, uh, Representative Pingree uh, is a great ocean advocate and uh, you know lives on an island in the Gulf of Maine, uh, off the coast of Maine. So she's uh, intimately connected with what's going on. Now, red tides, there's a, there's a lot of discussion uh, in the research community about where they start and, and where they move and things like that. But the bottom line is, without nitrogen, red tides can't grow and prosper. You know, their population of those little critters can't explode. So when you have uh, nitrogen runoff, and, and nitrogen comes from three large bins, if you will. One is air deposition, uh, anything that's burning... Uh, fuel, cars, trucks, power plants, etc., smokestacks, uh, that's all putting nitrogen into the air. Sooner or later, a lot of that comes back down. Uh, then we have land application of fertilizers. And in Maine, uh, 
for for pesticides, which is often in the same bag, like with weed and feed, with fertilizers. In Maine, regular citizens use more of that than all of the agribiz in the state of Maine. And we have a lot of agribusiness in Maine, from our forests to blueberries and potatoes and broccoli, et cetera. So when the nitrogen spread on the ground, it rains out. The rain washes the ground as well as the rooftops and parking lots. Nitrogen goes into the water. So regardless of where a red tide starts, whether it's offshore or inshore, there's plenty of nitrogen available for them to bloom and become a real red tide event. So, you know, oh, the other place that nitrogen comes from is uh, human and animal waste. So sewage treatment plants aren't designed to take out nitrogen. So even when they're doing a really good job of treating sewage, the nitrogen still goes, most of it goes through the treatment plant. So you're given all those sources and the fact that it's critical for red tide to grow, it's a real important factor in that phenomenon. So what can we do to stem the flow of all these nutrients into the Casco Bay? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, we don't work on air since we are friends of Casco Bay, but people are working on uh, tightening up permits for air emissions. And uh, we do work with and on sewage treatment plants. Uh, they have to do a good job, and we're big champions for sewage treatment plants because they're doing a challenging job for the rest of the community, they, but they have to be run well and operated well. Um, and we're going to be working along with the citizens of Maine to get those criteria in place. But I want Mary to talk to you about our basecaping program because that in, can involve every citizen doing their part to help keep nitrogen out of the bay. Mary? Mary Cerullo, tell us about basecaping. <laughs> yeah, well, we started this uh, several years ago after Joe was actually asked to do an ad for um, a quasi-governmental group called the Maine Board of Pesticides Control, and he was holding up uh, uh, some of his uh, water sampling kits saying uh, uh, weed and feed is not fish food because, as he was saying, uh, that fertilizer that goes into the ocean is... Uh, feeding algae blooms and nitrogen pollution. Uh, so we started working on a, a very grassroots program, if you will, called Bayscaping, uh, which has since expanded statewide to a larger program called Yardscaping with lots of partners uh, that basically just tells uh, homeowners how they can have a safe and healthy lawn uh, without polluting uh, the bay with uh, lawn chemicals, which include both fertilizers and pesticides. And uh, it's really uh, based on a program called Integrated Pest Management, which is, you know, only applying chemicals if you really need it. So we go around, we do neighborhood socials where we meet with people over coffee and dessert uh, so that they bring all their neighbors together and talk about how they can change their lawn care practices so one person with the dandelions is not ostracized by the rest of the community. And instead <laughs> they all understand what to do to have a healthy lawn. Uh, so, for instance, one of the first things I tell them is, you know, do a soil test to see what, if any, chemicals your lawn needs in order to grow healthy. And uh, if you do have to spread fertilizer, do it only in Maine anyway in the uh, late summer, early fall, this time of year. Uh, based Mary, on I'm going to have to interrupt you because we're out of time. We'll be okay. back after the break and learn more about the basecaping and how you can save money by using less fertilizers on your lawn.
Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Ready to lift your spirit? Join Karen Tatanich every week for Spirit Connections. Karen will share with you the power of energy work. It can get you through the good times and the tough times. Karen will bring together stories of hope and good news based on her work with all aspects of energy. There are people and companies out there that are bringing joy to our planet. You'll learn about the power of spirit at home, at work, and at play. Spirit Connections is broadcast live Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on 7th Wave Network. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the game plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the game plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the voice america sports channel it's game time thank you for listening to the green talk network help to spread the green by involving your family and friends you're doing your part now help them think green spread the green the green talk network listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with the Friends of Casco Bay. And uh, Mary Cerullo was telling us how we can be green, but not too green. This is the Green Talk Network, but we don't want to overgreen our lawns and our um, suburban areas. Uh, so, Mary, what, what's the... Oh, tell us how people can learn more about what you're telling us of these pointers of how we can make a difference for Casco Bay. Where can um, people go for more information? We, they can go right to our website. We have a link to uh, our programs and basecaping and other advice that's uh, www.cascobay.org. 
www.forensicescobay.org, and they can also look for Forensic Escobay on Facebook. We've actually moved into the 21st century. Um, and I think when they start reading, they'll see that if they just if they have a lawn that's over 10 years old, they really don't need to put on any lawn chemicals. And I'd recommend that they really try not to use these combo products of weed and feed, which are usually a combination of like three pesticides and four different kinds of fertilizers. And you just don't need to literally overkill uh, your lawn. Uh, and the, the very best thing you can do besides the soil test is um, at this time of year, if you want to add a, uh, a little compost and, uh, and uh, overseed the lawn with extra grass seed and just kind of walk it in for the winter, uh, ever, after a while you end, eventually crowd out those weeds that annoy uh, people. And uh, mm. if you see ladybugs and other pests that drive you crazy, try picking them off. Uh, and uh, we have a, a, a saying here that our approach to uh, applying pesticides and fertilizers is sort of like when we were growing up, Rob, because you and I are yes. colleagues. Um, I had a friend that would start sun tanning in April uh, behind the sand dunes uh, of Massachusetts so she could be have a deep, dark tan by June. And now we know that that leads to skin cancer and leathery skin. So we're trying to change the culture of applying these pesticides and fertilizers, which have an incredible impact not only on the bay, uh, which our water testing has shown, uh, but also on kids and pets. So they're really not. Well, this is really interesting because I'm a property owner, and you know, I want to do the responsible thing to keep my lawn looking good so I can sell the house for a decent price and stuff. <laughs> And so the temptation is to go out and buy the do-it-all bag and load up the spreader, and you're telling me that, you know, I can save money and save Saturday morning time um, by um, basically the interesting point you made was to do some fall seeding so that there's more and more grass seed in there to help push out the other, uh, the dandelions. Right. Right, and there's things that you can do, just simple things like mow your lawn to three inches. Uh, if you have to water, water once or twice a week early in the morning. Tips in basecaping that we have that we um, you can find on the website and other things like that. And the wonderful thing about basecaping is it's something that an individual can do, changing their behavior and overnight have a positive impact on the environment. And, you know, everyone we talk to, certainly in Maine, wants to do the right thing but doesn't always know what it is, especially when you're besieged by um, lawn um, you know, lawn chemicals. Yeah, the advertisements. It's just, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the biggest things we're fighting, Rob, is the, the big lawn care product manufacturing companies uh, would have us believe, and they do heavy advertising, that you have to apply products to your lawn four times a year. They have, a, you know, a four-step process. Yeah. You do one in the spring and four in the late fall. And, and, and to your points, that costs you money and it costs you time but you're putting chemicals and pesticides, or that's the same thing, but on your lawn four times a year when you don't need it. And people need to understand the link. It goes on your lawn. Some of it doesn't stay there. It washes off your lawn, down your driveway, you know, into a collection system and into a body of water. So yeah. not only are we spending our time and money to put it on our lawns, we're putting it into, in our case, Casco Bay. And it's a needless expense of that time and money and a needless waste and application of chemicals that are going to hurt things in the ocean. 
I don't have to put those signs up saying just, just you know, pesticides, stay off the grass. Yeah. I don't have to worry about my pets getting into, you know, the grass. And that can't be good, like you said, for the waterways. If it's, you can't let your pets and children on the lawn, you know, why, is this, why should we let this be washed into the waterways? Right. Good and, point. And it seems that, you know, most communities have to prove it to themselves. You know, it's like uh, right here in River City, we have a problem. And as Mary mentioned, when we think of pesticides, which are linked to all these lawn care products, every place that we have sampled, and we sample just before the rainwater runoff goes into the bay, you know, right when it's entering salt water, every place we've sampled, we found pesticides in the water. It's really ubiquitous. And, uh, you know, to this point, uh, those manufacturers have won because people want the American lawn, you know, and uh, they got to learn to love a dandelion. This is just, uh, it, it is like the, the tans that turn cancerous. The green lawns are going to come around to bite us. And, and Canada has been far more proactive. There was a little town in Quebec called Hudson that banned the uh, cosmetic use of pesticides, and it took 10 years of lawsuits by the lawn care companies uh, going all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court for the town to um, win approval to regulate pesticides in its community. And uh, so many towns and provinces in Canada now ban the, the use of pesticides for just cosmetic purposes. Uh, and there are a lot of communities here in Maine that are starting to pay attention that are either doing voluntary uh, uh, education of their uh, citizens or are banning it on playing fields. Uh, and there's talk about trying to get homeowners to stop using it in a, in a more concerted fashion because uh, uh, we're just bringing in so much more pesticides and fertilizers than we need to use. Now, Joe, you're the Casco Baykeeper. Are you seeing evidence of bioaccumulation of toxins in Casco Bay? Um. We we don't test for that, Rob. So I can't speak. Yeah, to that. no. I mean, it's you know, we know from the literature before. it happens, but that's not something we've documented firsthand. But that's another concern that we have for ocean ecosystems: is you know all these different chemicals washing into the ocean, entering the food chain, and and accumulating on up the food chain. And oh, absolutely! And it seems like you know every month, every year, we hear about a new chemical of concern uh, that may be accumulating in our seafood. Yeah, Roger uh, Payne has been talking about how, you know, whales are at the top of the food chain, or and when they accumulate these poisons, they stay in the fat of the animal, and it, being a mammal, it is then lactated and given to the, the next generation. So he sees, you know, uh, marine mammals on a road to extinction just because of this passing up generations. Right, uh, we have um, one of our board members, Dr. John Wise, uh, he has a toxicology lab at the University of Southern Maine, and that is his specialty is the accumulation of toxins in uh, marine mammals. And he's actually in the Gulf of Mexico, as we speak, sampling uh, whales and other marine mammals to, to find out what the impact of the spill is and also the whole environment of the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, that's Roger Payne's vessel. And those are yeah, uh, some of those whales were shot by Payne with a crossbow to get <laughs> the skin samples out that... Uh, the Weiss lab's amazing. You can see a sperm whale, you know, in a Petri dish there and stuff. He's got living samples of whale tissues. Right. And I resemble a marine mammal myself, so I'm kind of worried. <laughs> uh, I think that's more the walrus persuasion. 
Um, well, thank you. Uh, are there other programs that you briefly want to tell us that Friends of Casco Bay are doing? Uh, we have about three minutes left. Yeah, well, uh, we've been plenty busy, and we've touched on a lot of the major ones. You know, the uh, vessel pump-out program, very active. Uh, Mary's yeah. Bayscaping program, uh, have, helping people have green lawns but keeping the ocean blue. Our water quality program, which uses a lot of volunteers, uh, it's highly quality controlled, EPA approved. Uh, it's been going on now for 17 or 18 years. We have a great data set, and that includes a lot, a lot of nitrogen uh, sampling. Um, Is that right in Portland Harbor as well as Casco Bay? Or? Yeah, yeah, all around the bay. We have uh, great uh, coverage, a uh, lot of stations. And uh, those volunteers, uh, they give me energy, I have to tell you. They, they go out. 7 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and do, you know, it takes them about an hour to get the sampling and analysis done, and then they're back out at 3 o'clock catching the, the next tide and doing it again. And we have volunteers who have been doing that over 15 years. Just amazing, and as I said, very energizing to see their concern about the health of the bay. And Mary, uh, how's your work going? Well, yeah, well, part of my work is to get the word out about Friends of Casco Bay, so I'm delighted to have you uh, have invited well, are you, to your Are program. you coming out with publications soon? I, actually, I do. I have a book coming out called City Fish, Country Fish, sort of uh, uh, comparing uh, tropical fish to uh, cold marine fish like the ones we encounter here in the Bay, and it was a good excuse to go to Key West to do some research. Yeah, I, re I recommend Mary's books. They're just phenomenal. Yeah. Well, we can sit down and talk about those over-fried clams because I'm also a big supporter. <laughs> uh, the other thing, Rob, as a baykeeper and, and as waterkeepers around the world do, uh, it, our work comes in over the phone and through email. You know, there's a threat of the day. Uh, today, I was uh, this morning dealing with uh, the potential reopening of a boat launch that was closed as a mitigation project to allow eelgrass to grow. Uh, and we work on combined sewer overflows where raw sewage in our older cities uh, overflows into the bay when it uh, rains out. So you know, like I say, every day there's a, a threat that we work on or something that we're trying to move forward that is proactive before the threat. Thank you, Joe Payne, Casco Baykeeper, and Mary Cerullo, Associate Director of Friends of Casco Bay. Uh, look them up online, Friends of Casco Bay. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Rob. Real, real pleasure speaking with you. Mary, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Rob. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. Normally, we... uh we call on Mike Dunmire to hear about what's happening in Washington, but we're turning the tides today. We're going to call on Mike, but I am actually sitting at the Botanical Gardens across the street from the White House uh, Capitol building on the corner of uh, First and Independence. So if you hear traffic behind me, it's because I don't want to shout inside the Botanical Gardens. Uh, and Mike is on the phone, and Mike, that was quite the gathering we had last night. It uh, was indeed, Rob. Thanks. Yeah, we had, uh, it was our annual event, uh, Ocean Champions event to honor uh, our champions on the Hill for the fine work that they do for the oceans. And it's a great opportunity for uh, these members of Congress to get together with folks that care about the oceans. There are activists there. There are some, you know, kind of ocean celebrities like Margot Pellegrino and Roz Savage that always come by and others. And it's, uh, it's really a tremendous gathering of people who all care about the oceans and are working hard from different perspectives to bring about some change. And uh, last night's event, I think, was probably the best ever. Yeah, Jim Toomey was there, the Sherman's Lagoon cartoonist. That's true, absolutely. He, had, uh, he was there, and then we had... Uh, it's funny because um, we always get tremendous turnout from uh, our champions on the Hill, but something always happens to complicate it, uh, last year, there was a Senate dinner that wound up being scheduled on the same night, and in the House, there were a series of procedural votes called. It kept the uh, the members engaged uh, well into the night, and yet we still had a dozen members that you know kind of fought their way over to come through. And then this year, uh, there were no votes scheduled for Tuesday, so 
uh, House leadership told their, their members to stay in district and continue to campaign, so most of Congress wasn't here. But again, um, a very strong turnout from some great champions. I'll just run through real quick, because I know there's some other issues you wanted to hit on, Rob. Um, but uh, Frank Craddeville from the 1st District of Maryland, who we've endorsed and are fighting hard for, uh, attended. He brought with him Glenn Nye, uh, who is a coastal Virginia rep. He basically, if you just follow down the coast, he's the next district down for Mr. Craddeville. And Mr. Craddeville wanted to introduce him to the Ocean Champions community, which I thought was great. Uh, Brian Baird, the great sponsor of our uh, harmful algal bloom bill from the state of Washington and also a champion of defeating ocean acidification and just a really wonderful man came. Uh, Frank Pallone, Sam Farr, Chris Van Holland, who in addition to being a congressman from Maryland is the head of the DCCC. Uh, Shelley Pingree from Maine, uh, who I believe you've spoken about on the program. We endorsed her at the event, so this was just a fabulous chance to have her there. Uh, John Garamendi, who we've also endorsed from California, is big against uh, uh, offshore oil drilling. And then uh, Sheldon Whitehouse, the uh, the senator from Rhode Island, who has introduced the National Endowment for the Oceans, came and spoke passionately about that bill. Yeah, it was great to see uh, Sherry uh, Pingree and her associate, uh, Nick uh, Batista, uh, you know, Nick was telling me the same kinds of stories from the uh, Casco Bay of fish swimming in, of Menhaden being driven into uh, hypoxic zones and, and dying from lack of oxygen. And, you know, the issues that, that we're seeing all around the country are alive and well in the Gulf of Maine and in uh, Congressman Pingree's uh, backyard. And uh, I think she was quite eloquent about her support for the Habs bill. Indeed, and, and she played a pivotal role because, uh, the, as, as we've told here, it ran into some partisan game-playing, if you will, uh, and, uh, you know, the Republicans, of course, there are plenty of good ocean Republicans, but not nearly as many these days as we would like. Uh, those who are not so great on oceans rallied against it. I guess they're in favor of toxic algae, but they rallied against the bill and um, pushed it to defeat once, kind of coming out of nowhere, but uh, Congresswoman Pingree, who works on the Rules Committee, was able to structure a rule to get it back to the floor for a second vote where it was victorious. So without her creativity and the support of House leadership, uh, that partisan bickering might have gotten in the way of a really good bill getting passed. And, uh, That's right. Pingree was, was a, a great champion there. Uh, and Congressman Sheldon, I mean, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse was quite eloquent about the need for a national ocean endowment. He was. Uh, and as, you know, as, as as he sees it, you know, there's a national endowment for the arts because we believe that uh, uh, it is a national value to, to promote uh, uh, the creation of art and, and beauty in our country and also believe similarly that the oceans are a national treasure that we need to protect and, of course, in the same way, establish a significant amount of money that can be used to conserve and, and protect them, particularly when you look at the damage that is being done. You need real dollars as solutions. Um, it is a bipartisan bill, so he has introduced this along with uh, Congresswoman Olymp or excuse me, Senator Olympia Snow uh, from the state of Maine, who is also an ocean champion, uh, and he has gotten the support of the relevant committee chair, uh, Rockefeller, uh, as a co-sponsor as well. But he's working hard to develop bipartisan support. That is the strategy, and it's the right strategy. So as we look at this, an ocean champion seeks to help We'll be trying to find as many good ocean Republicans ready to sign on and, and vocally support this bill as possible. A companion bill 
has already been passed in the House with the CLEAR Act. So if we can get the National Endowment for the Oceans passed in the Senate, we will have, for the very first time, a potentially billion-dollar-a-year ocean trust fund established to do great things for the oceans. So uh, this is really the time for ocean-loving people to call their senators and urge them, particularly if you have Republican senators, urge them to support this wonderful bill. Uh, Senator uh, Whitehouse, like I say, spoke passionately and eloquently on that last night. I think he moved many people in the room and created a lot of hope. Uh, this bill has long odds, but uh, we're starting to feel momentum, so this could be good. Yeah, the Republicans should be pleased that this bill will not further penalize the oil companies. This is money already the oil companies paying to the U.S. government, and a portion would be set aside as a restricted national endowment for the oceans. That's, that's uh, and I'm on the Hill point. here talking to uh, look, not, you know, my Republican uh, 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 senators. Um, I'm in Massachusetts, so we got Scott Brown, Judd Gregg in New Hampshire, uh, uh, Lieberman in uh, Connecticut. He's an independent, uh, and some uh, Southern senators. We have also uh, members from Florida up here uh, talking to them as well. Uh, it's this is a truly uh, you know the economic benefits of. Uh, better conservation of the ocean resources, uh, you know, to make sure that we have sustainable fish so that there can always be a fishing industry and to make sure that when we come to recreate, we find clean shores. It, it's difficult, and people have done it, but it, it's very valuable, the economic value of all this. Oh, that, that's true, and a great point to make, too, is that there is zero cost to the taxpayer. This is coming off of the uh, energy development resources, so no additional cost to the taxpayer. Uh, no additional cost to any companies. It just reroutes money that goes to the general treasury. And from an investment perspective, as you point out, when you look at jobs and economic growth, this would probably have a positive economic return. The money you invest here, uh, in addition to protecting environments, quite likely will generate more money than is spent. And states have three ways to get money. One is there will be a direct appropriation of funds to them, for example, Florida will get 23 million, and Alabama will get 10 million, and Connecticut 14 million, Louisiana 21 million. Then they can also bid for funds, you know, by submitting proposals for what they need more money for. Uh, so it's a very productive. It's very good about getting the funds out to where the the funds are needed. Absolutely, and I believe a, a, a merit-based approach for a, a lot of it to look at what are the best opportunities to apply this money. There's certainly so much that can be done, and as you mentioned, so much that can be used to save jobs, grow economies, as well as protect ecosystems. So this is the time Mike, for everybody to interrupt. The ocean We're out of time, but remember to go to OceanChampions.org for more about Ocean Champions. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thank you, Rob.
Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.